Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Before we broke for the holidays back in November, we examined the question, why is change so difficult? Or to say it more clearly, why is it so hard for me to change in the areas of my life that I know are not what they ought to be? And in that session, we came to this basic conclusion. God allows frustration and pressure in our lives in order to help us come to the end of our old selves so that in that process, his sovereign grace guiding us into the place where we can freely choose, we then change. This is a process. It's all by grace. And that grace is partly focused on making sure our freedom to choose his will is intact. So we're going to continue to unpack this mystery in our session today of how the sovereignty of God and our free choice works together. In order to do that, I want to ask you to listen carefully to the scriptures I'm going to read to you. I'm not going to comment on them. They don't need any commentary. They're as clear and unambiguous as words can possibly be. And they stand on their own as bedrock truth. But it might be interesting to see how we react to hearing them, depending on how frustrated we may be at some issue going on in our own lives. So, here goes. Just listen. Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Job twenty-three thirteen. Whatever his soul desires, he does. Job 42.2, you can do everything. No purpose can be withheld from you. Psalm 115, verse 3, he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven, earth, sea, and all the deep places of the earth. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24. Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Isaiah 46, verse 11. I will do all my pleasure. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Isaiah 24, verse 27. The Lord has purposed. Who can annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Isaiah 50, verse 2. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Isaiah 55, verse 11. My word shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. You made the heaven and the earth by your great power. There is nothing too difficult for you. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Is there anything too hard for me, says the Lord? Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. God does according to his will in heaven and earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Romans chapter 9, verse 19. He does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but it only depends on God who has mercy. Romans chapter 9 verse 19 also says, Who can resist his will? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Philippians 3 verse 21. He is able to subdue all things to himself. Now, with all those verses in mind, what about the obvious issue that so much of what we do seems to resist and thwart God's will through the entire story of man's history, including our own personal history? There seems to be nothing as clear as the evidence that our willful choice-making is a hindrance to God. 
do we need a proof text or a few to support that, or doesn't the entire history of the human race already prove it? But here are just a few scriptures. Psalm 81, verses 10 through 16. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice. Israel would not have anything to do with me. So I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they did not walk in my counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened to me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. Or a famous one we could all quote, Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Paul's letters were seeking, among other things, to correct wrong behaviors that were against God's will all through the New Testament. So here again, it seems to be crystal clear that our wills can thwart God's will. But then, what about all those verses we just read, many of them we know by heart, that say the very opposite? How do we reconcile these two points of view? Well, Here are some verses that may help us see the place for both truths. Jeremiah 9, verses 3 through 7. They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. They proceed from evil to evil and refuse to know me, says the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will melt them and try them. For how else will I be able to deal with them? Isaiah 1, verse 25 through 27. I will bring my hand upon you and thoroughly purge away your dross. Zion shall be redeemed with justice. Malachi 3, verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Of course, these are only a tiny sample of such verses throughout the scriptures. That should make it plain that, yes, we do have freedom to some degree, and we often use it wrongly, but God sits above it all and in his wisdom and love brings us into the heat of conflict caused by the friction of our rebellion. And though we are free, quote-unquote, in a limited sort of way, he still is able to bring us to the place of yielding to him so that our freedom fulfills his will for us. This is complicated if it's real. We hate paradox. We Westerners want everything easily explained. And if it is A, then it cannot be B, we say. And often that certainly is true. Some things are really that black and white but not all things. The scriptures have many examples of seeming contradictions. They're not contradictions, but they are a paradox. The Greek word paradoxon means something that is true, but is contrary to appearances. A paradox consists of two contradictory ideas that seemingly cannot both be true, but yet they are. It's a study in itself and one worth doing to see all the paradoxes in Scripture. I won't take the time here to go into the whole study of paradoxes, but let me say for the moment that paradox is not God playing games with us. It's not God purposefully making things difficult or obscure. It is simply, or not so simply, the fact of how reality works. Now, I hesitate to say it's the only way God could make reality be what it is, since we just spent time spelling out all that God can do. But with all those clear verses on God's omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience, 
even God can't create nonsense. And without paradox, Scripture would seem like one big book full of nonsense. If we're going to face reality, it will demand paradox. If there was no paradox in the Bible, that would be a good reason to doubt its divine origin. The fact that Scripture spells out that which cannot be easily or simplistically described by the presence of paradox strongly infers that the words of Scripture are describing real events. If we see a shadow of this truth in the seeming conflict between Newtonian and quantum physics, we get a a small picture of what I'm talking about. We've discussed that in some detail in our prayer series from a few months ago. We're living in a universe so complicated that even the most highly trained physicists now will admit that understanding reality is getting way harder to do. It seems that the more we know, the less we understand. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity that if Christianity was simple, he would not believe it was true. The simplicity of faith in Jesus is something a child can express, but the backstory of reality behind the simple truth of the gospel that a child can grasp, that's complicated, and it's paradoxical. Otherwise, it would be a shallow, simplistic fantasy. The moment we try to simplify either side of a paradox in order to try to make it acceptable to our tiny logic, we get into trouble. If reality in its fullness can be explained by you, either you must be God or you are drawing a stick figure and claiming that you are drawing an interdimensional portrait. That does not mean you are not supposed to wrestle with both sides in search of a better understanding. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to discover it or understand it. The wrestling and grappling with mystery is meant to help us grow, to understand, uh, and to, to grapple is a necessary part of that. Here are just a few of the better-known paradoxes of Scripture. I'm, I'm just listing a few. God is three persons but one God. God is the all-knowing one who forgets. God is the unalterably holy judge who abundantly pardons. He's the changeless one who changes. God hates the wicked and loves the wicked. God became a man. The Prince of Peace bears a sword. And the one we're most focused on in this present study, God chooses us and we choose him. His choice affects us and our choice affects, so to speak, him. The verses of Scripture that support both sides of this paradox, sovereignty and free will, are so strong in their respective statements that it is understandable that some tend to embrace one position about it while others embrace the other. Many people who do this then refuse to consider the many scriptures that support the other side they have not embraced because that makes the difficulty of paradox more painfully real. But we are talking about paradox, not nonsense. For instance, the Trinity is difficult to grasp, but it's not nonsense. It can be wrestled with, and you can come to a place of embracing by faith what cannot be fully understood by third-dimensional reasoning. But to say that we do it by faith doesn't mean we remove our brains and become loopy, spooky religionists. But on the other hand, If we say God is love, then we say that he predestines most of the human race to damnation for sins they are supposedly guilty of before they were even born, and all this is for his glory. Well, that's not paradox. That's sheer nonsense, and it's also blasphemy. 
Yet a large number of believers in Jesus hold to this idea as if it is both true and valid. How? Well, by simply rejecting a major scriptural truth that God is love and that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Simple. Just refuse to believe God loves all mankind, but only his chosen, and problem is solved. Now the only problem you have to deal with now is with a God who is arbitrary, cruel, and unlovable. No, we must embrace both sides of the paradox. God hates evil people and God loves them. Since all people are evil, it is saying to us that God hates evil because he loves us. God hates sin, and when we embrace sin, he hates that false version of us, which he did not intend us to become, because he loves us and will not allow evil to have us. He hates the evil. See, it is difficult to grasp, but it's not irrational. We don't have to throw out uh, one side of the truth in order to keep the other. The two sides actually help explain each other more fully. Now, as parents, surely we understand this, don't we? If we say to our teenager, for instance, I'm not mad at you, I love you. We're not speaking wisely because first we may not be telling the truth. We may be really angry but afraid to show it. That's not good. But also we are communicating a falsehood that if you love someone, then you cannot ever be angry at them. And that is simply not true or healthy. But a far healthier and more honest statement would be, yes, I am angry at you because I love you. Here, love and anger are not opposites of each other, but expressions of each other. Have we not all been angry at a loved one because our loved one for our love for them uh, cannot t- tolerate self-destructive behavior in them? Well, of course we have. Sadly, this subject has divided the church into basically two strongly held opinions for centuries. Both sides err, sometimes terribly, when we refuse truth from the opposite side of our chosen stance. We get a wrong view of God when we embrace only one part of a paradox and reject the other. I have given an example of a false view of God from the sovereignty side, which I tend to overdo often because I have had many sad and infuriating encounters with people who hold that position. But what about the other side of it? What's the error we fall into if we reject sovereignty and go overboard on free will? Then we get unscriptural statements like this, quote, well, their will is involved, you know. You can pray for them, but God can't change their will. Oh, really? He can't? What about all those verses we just read about God being able to do anything? Well, we say, he can do anything that's doable, but he has given man free will, and even God cannot change our will. We say that as if the human will is really the sovereign of the universe, and the real sovereign has to bow to the human will. We say that erroneous statement with as much of a straight face, but with erroneous confidence as our predestinationalist friend may say from their point of view. Both of those are wrong. A side note here, but a vitally important one. Jesus said he had things he wanted to tell us, but we could not hear them yet. But the Holy Spirit would eventually guide us into all truth, John 16. His high priestly prayer for us in John 17, which of course will come to pass, is that we will all come into such unity of love that eventually the whole world will know who he is because of our love for one another and for him. And Paul in Ephesians draws a picture of us in that perfect unity of faith that we will one day come into as the body of Christ. Therefore, I'm at rest inside over our ongoing battles and disagreements. We will be brought into greater and greater love and unity of faith because Jesus will see to it 
So since he is well able to accomplish this, as we just read in many, many verses, we can be patient and loving toward those with whom we strongly disagree. Unity of love will precede precede unity of faith. If we wait till we all agree on everything before we love, we will never get there. Love will correct faith, not the other way around. Be wary when you withdraw love from someone because of some doctrinal difference they may hold. We may, we may never withdraw love because we cannot agree. By maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we help fulfill the very desire we all have to come into that unity. So if this is a troubling issue to you right now, just relax and know we are all wrestling with conflicts that are God-ordained conflicts. We will all grow up from the struggle. I've learned over and over in the 50-plus years of studying Scripture that when I hit some struggle that I can't make sense of, if I'll ask for wisdom and wait for the answer, it will eventually come. And my struggle turns out to be not so much a struggle, but a growth opportunity disguised as struggle. And quite often it comes through a person who takes the opposite posture of where I want to be. So let's try to examine the question of our predestined future and our free will choice making. For instance, how do we put these two verses together? Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now, choose life. John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Did God choose us, or do we choose him? Obviously, God is the initiator. Nothing exists apart from his creating it. No situation happens that is not his initiation. Everything does not happen for a reason, some things occur because of human or demonic evil, but God works in all things, even that which he hates, to bring about eventual good that he loves. Your life is not an accident. He sets up the scenarios in which we are free to choose what we choose. A.W. Tozer has predestination pictured like a huge ship crossing the Atlantic, the ship is predestined to go from Liverpool to New York. All who are on the ship are predetermined by the captain to get to their final destination. But along the trip, they are fully free to do all kinds of things on the ship that are their own private choice. Yet they're still limited by a larger reality. Their freedom is not total. If they are on the predestined ship, they are ultimately going to arrive at the predetermined destination. This is a good illustration, only as far as it goes. It can help us think a bit more clearly about this whole subject, but let's try to make one thing clear. It's not a tug-of-war between us and God, between our freedom and God's choice. It may appear like a tug-of-war. It may seem like human wills can thwart God. And we can all cite verses that seem to affirm man's ability to do just that, but they always must be considered in the light of those other verses that affirm that God is almighty. And we have read a huge list of verses that leave no room for interpretation. If those verses are true, then God will always get what he wants. He cannot be defeated by our wills. Our wills are involved, but they are not ultimately determining. We are limited in our ability to choose freely without God's help, our freedom is aided by grace. Prayers for others seems to be a way that God uses to increase his grace for them while at the same time teaching us through the classroom of prayer how to rule alongside him in difficult life situations. So in this way, we are both being trained to rule and to love at the same time. And I might add, to also endure at the same time. How many times have I spoken with people who are praying for a loved one, usually a wayward child? I've quoted some promise of God about prayer and about God's saving power, and the struggling parent will often reply in some form or other, 
something like this. Now, if they're on the sovereignty side, they'll say, I've sadly often had them say this, well, maybe they're just not in the elect. That is agonizingly wrong of them to say, but that's what they've been taught. But on the other side, the free will side, they'll say, yes, I know all about God's power and so forth, but God can't change their will. Well, is is that true based on all those scriptures I just read with you about God's sovereign power? Is that true? See how often we talk out of both sides of our mouth religiously? That God cannot overcome our wills? So let me get this straight. Almighty God, the supreme Lord and creator of the universe, the all-wise, all-knowing fountain of love, goodness, wisdom, and power cannot be defeated by anything except the tiny, frail human will. A will that is encumbered by weak human frailty, bad parenting, demonic deception, misinterpretation of reality fed into them by millions of other human beings with the same weaknesses. Is that really true? Do you really believe that? Just think about what you're saying. No wonder people falter in prayer. We're so mixed in our vision of God himself. We can't possibly believe God is almighty and say our prayers may not work because after all, God cannot, you fill in the blank. We are free, but only to a degree. There's a momentous scene in Lord of the Rings from the chapter entitled The Shadow of the Past. Tolkien said this chapter is the pivot chapter of the entire story. Frodo asks, if Gollum hates the ring so much, why doesn't he get rid of it? Gandalf replied, he hates it and loves it. He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. It was not Gollum, Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. This is Romans chapter 7. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that I do. Read in place of the word ring, the word sin with a capital S. And it's a clear and accurate picture of our dilemma as human beings. Tolkien goes on to explain Yet, even Gollum was not wholly ruined. There was a little corner of his mind that was still his own, and light came through it as through a chink in the dark. We are free only to a small degree. Otherwise, left only to ourselves, apart from grace helping us, we are held captive by evil. I mentioned earlier how frustrated I used to get in my early Christian life whenever I would hear people make reference to being set free by the Lord. I did not at all feel set free. I was struggling, struggling with anger, with lust, with depression, with fear. Then later, pride and arrogance and all kinds of other related battles. I eventually learned a very important lesson about freedom, which I have referred to but will repeat again here. Because we need to hear it till we get it. Jesus did not come to set me free from the battle, but for the battle. And until I came to him and responded to his grace, I was not free at all. I was a slave to my appetites, emotions, moods, suggestions of others, demonic setups and temptations and a whole host of other slave-driven influences. But when I came to Jesus and asked him to be Lord over all my life, I was instantly set free from God's point of view. But I had to learn to walk out that freedom in my earthly, daily existence. So I was already free in Christ. Then I began to be set free of bondage to those voices and influences as I exercised my newly set free will, which was now able to choose him instead of my old behaviors. And I often still chose badly. The pain from those wrong choices was now far worse for me than before because my heart was not numbed by evil. 
But now I was fully awake to love and goodness. So the pain was a lot worse after I'd really given my heart to the Lord. So when I choose sin, the pain from my wrong choice is far deeper. So I was actually more miserable as a Christian than I'd been as a self-serving pagan. I wanted to be free, Romans 7. But I'd not learned much about living in Romans 8. On one level, I did truly love Jesus and want what was right. But on a deeper level, I feared giving up what I thought I needed to make me happy. Jesus loved me too much to be sympathetic with this. And so he allowed me to go deep into the pain my sin was causing. I've mentioned before of the night I lay under a dim streetlight in Houston, Texas and screamed out to God, how could you love me and let me hurt like this? He carried me when I was too damaged to walk. And all that time I was bonding to him more and more on the emotional, human, earthly side of things. And so soon I found I was no longer looking to him to fix me. I just wanted him to be mine and me to be his. And that's what he was after. The need to change and be fixed was secondary in his eyes to the need to love and be loved. It wasn't too many years till I came to realize and to say to him, it doesn't matter to me if I change or not. If I'm happy or not, it doesn't matter. All that matters to me is you. I still felt the old pulls, but as I learned to trust him and believe his word through many stumbles, I found I had the power to choose, which soon became power to act differently. That was a power I had not known before. Up till then, I was just a puppet on the devil's string, giving in to whatever dark influence I was under. I did not feel the battle before, because there simply was no battle. I was a slave of fleshly and demonic bondage. So when I was set free of that slavery, I began to experience a new kind of pressure, that of being able to obey Jesus instead of my old master. And knowing if I chose sin, it was no longer a slavish forced choice, but a freely chosen wrong one by me. God allowed that to be a process so that I might learn in the struggle not only how to listen to him, but also how to develop as a full-grown son of his. So I was certainly set free, but freedom not from conflict, but freedom for conflict. Freedom to wage war against what was waging war against me. A picture from the story of Esther may help illustrate. The Jews were in subjection to the Persians, but when a plot among the hierarchy of the Persian government was hatched and revealed by the uh, uh, grace of God that uh, they were planning to kill all the Jews. When, When that was exposed, the king ordered that all the Jews be set free to arm themselves and to fight when they were attacked. Now, I used to hear that story, and I was a little put off by it. I thought, you know, if the king cared, why didn't the king just protect them? Well, this is a picture, among other things, of what God does with us. Of course, we prefer that the story end differently, that the king do all the work. But God is teaching us in this story a lesson we desperately need to learn. It's all by grace, and we must act. Notice, I didn't say it's all by grace, but we must act. As if grace has one part to play, and then our own free will and strength of, uh, of character has another part to play. No, it's all by grace. It's all by grace, and therefore we must act. Jesus refers several times in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to those who, quote, overcome. John says in 1 John chapter 5, Who is he that overcomes but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We become set free when we come to Jesus to choose to fight our one-time 
slave driver. And it is in this fight that we grow and become wise and strong in discerning what is good from what is evil. The writer of Hebrews refers to this same process in chapter 5 when he says, mature food is for those who can digest it, who by having exercised themselves in battle have trained their senses to discern the difference between what is good and what is evil. This is done by exercise, by working it out in battles. This demands that we engage in more than mere believing the right information, but in willful choosing. But we are empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to do this. So this is what Paul means when he says in Philippians chapters 2, verse 12 through 13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God within us that is working both to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. We could not do it on our own. It is all by God's grace. But grace sets up this struggle on purpose in order to bring us into a willed freedom of exercising our personal power for good. In this way, he gives us a new heart. He writes his laws on our hearts. We are given power to become the children of God or the sons of God. Before Jesus set us free, we were in bondage. Those in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil think they're free, free to sin, free to lust, free to hate, etc. They say they are they don't want to be controlled by religious rules, and rightly so. But they're actually puppets on the devil's string, dancing as he chooses to his tune. He says, drink or lust or hate, and they stupidly obey. They are not free at all. You recognize this condition. Scripture describes it in Ephesians chapter 4. You are no longer to live like the Gentiles live in the perverseness of their souls and the futility of their minds. Their moral understanding is darkened and their reasoning is clouded. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is deep in them due to the hardness of their hearts. In their spiritual apathy, they've become callous and unable to feel. They become reckless and have abandoned themselves to unbridled lust, eager to indulge in every form of impurity, but you have not so learned Christ. Strip yourselves of your former nature and discard it. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 22 says that a sinner's iniquities will take the wicked himself and he shall be held with the cord of his own sins. Psalm 9.15 The godless are sunk down to the pit they made in the net which they laid in their own foot, or their own foot is taken. The godless are sunk down to the pit they made. In the net which they laid is their own foot taken. The way these scriptures read, it seems clear that there is a freedom to choose to obey God or not. We've looked closely at scriptures that affirm both God's sovereign choice and our secondary choice in responding to God's initial choice of us. But any honest reading of scripture sees God's initial choice is really the decisive one. We are in bondage apart from his intervening grace. Through providential circumstances, God sets us up and empowers us to respond to him. We see it in Moses in Joseph, in Gideon, Isaiah, Mary, the mother of Jesus, many, many other stories, I guess all of Scripture. But in Scripture and in life of those we've known, we see it also, even our own life. I've told this before, but we need to hear it again. I remember years ago working with a young man who was obviously angry at God. He finally vented to me what was eating at him, he said, it seems like God is saying to me, when you can get it right, then I'll help you. But if you have to get it right first before I'll help you. So he said, if I could get it right, I wouldn't need his help. Why won't he just help me? 
I didn't judge him because I'd made the exact same mistake in my younger days. God is not interested in merely helping us get out of the battle. He's totally committed to keeping us in the battle so we can grow. He wants sons, not just children. Our lives are a story that's being worked out. We have to learn to live that story, not just scream and cry that it's hard. Whatever form our struggle is taking, it is the struggle and how we learn to deal with it that makes all the difference. When we pout and give up because it's difficult, we simply prove how much we need the muscle-building war that we are complaining that we're in. Of course, when I told him that, he, he got angrier. I understood. I had to live mine out, and so had he. Now let's talk for a moment about providence. The understanding of providence is very helpful. Providence is not a hard, fast concept of cold mechanical determinism like hyper-predestination is, in, in which, it, which uh, everything that happens is God's will and it would not have happened uh, unless it was God's will. This is far closer to Islam. Allah willed it, kismet, than it is to the Bible. Or even a bit softer concept, which we've talked about before, everything happens for a reason. No, we've examined that before. That's not providence. It still communicates the idea of a schizophrenic God who can't make up his mind whether to do good or evil. No, the true meaning of providence is God's overseeing of the events of our lives in order to move the free choices of people and the molding of circumstances in a way that will allow for freedom of humans to unknowingly fulfill God's predetermined purpose. It also allows for the attacks of the enemy and the battles of spiritual warfare. In this we see both predestination and freedom of our choice making. And they actually support each other. Though, of course, it is God's sovereignty overseeing the entire process while we tag along. In this, we also see a place provided by providence for the choices and schemes of the enemy of God and man, as well as the seeming accidental, quote-unquote, events of life. Uh, we don't have time here to chase the rabbit of whether all accidents are just that or whether all accidents are actually God's sovereignty or all accidents are attacks of the devil or human frailty. Uh, we've already stated clearly that God is not the author of evil, and so if you think that everything that happens is God's direct predestined uh, will, uh, then we've already addressed that. I don't think if we had all the time in the world to examine all this, we would be able to come to any concrete conclusions. Some things are going to just have to remain a mystery as long as we live on this plane of reality. But what we can know will give us what we need to endure the battles with what we do not and cannot know. Well, here are a few scriptures to help illustrate this. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things say the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know your works and your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Fear none of those things which, which you shall suffer. Look, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you shall be tested. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I shall give you the crown of life. In these verses you see the sovereign oversight of God the freedom of the devil to attack, the freedom of believers to trust God or choose to not trust, the seeming accidental circumstances symbolized by the phrase, some of you shall be cast into prison. Seems like a cast, a, a, a throw of the dice. Some of you shall be cast into prison. And the final Overall victory of goodness is rooted in the depth of the cross at, uh, and the resurrection. As Jesus says, I'm the one who was dead and I'm alive. Remember that as you face this war. 
Now we get this to some degree from teaching, but what seems to really help us a great deal is illustrations from stories. Uh, This is one of the reasons why epics like Lord of the Rings touches us so deeply, even if we don't understand why we are being so moved by those stories. A story rooted in true reality is a powerful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to teach us, to inspire us, to give us a vision of what we are going through in our own battle. That's why I referred to Lord of the Rings a while ago and want to bring one more picture from that story here to illustrate what we're talking about now. Uh, We see, for instance, in Lord of the Rings, a literary portrait of the miraculous dance between God's primary election and our secondary freedom of choice. As the seeming happenstances and human frailties of life conflict and unfold, the spiritual warfare aspect is in the background storyline. It's always present till the final battle at the close of the story. And we see all this swirling around in the Council of Elrond as he's convened it for the purpose of seeking wisdom to know what to do about the ring. By the way, the film version of this event sadly misses a crucial point in the story as everyone disintegrates into an unruly argument and Frodo is pictured as saying, in effect, since you're all fighting, I guess it's up to me to accept the burden of the ring. The book, however, portrays Frodo much differently. In the film, he does say the right words, which are, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. But the film implies that he's heroically, though fearfully and ignorantly and reluctantly accepting the task. The great point of the actual story was missed by the movie, and that is that Tolkien portrays Frodo as having in this moment received and embraced a divine calling upon him, one he has vaguely discerned all his life, but which now, in this decisive moment, he has clearly heard and accepted as his. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his small voice. Elrond raised his head and looked at Frodo, and Frodo felt his heart pierced by the sudden keenness of his glance. I think this task is appointed for you, Frodo. This is the hour of the Shire folk. When they arise from their quiet fields to shake the power and counsels of the great, who of all the wise could have foreseen it? It is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another, and I do not lay it upon you. But if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. Now for those who understood this from the book, we would not miss the ongoing theme of predestination and free will that interacts through the rest of the story. But for many who did not understand, this was a major lost point in an otherwise great effort of filming the trilogy of the ring. Another such picture from great storytelling is found in Tolkien's close friend and colleague C.S. Lewis from his novel Paralandra. The main character, Ransom, has been sent by God to the unfallen planet Venus to save it from being taken into the dark by a Satan figure who is in the form of a human but totally possessed invader. As he struggles inside himself with the choices he must make to save the planet, suddenly, quote, there had arisen before him with perfect certitude the knowledge that about this time tomorrow you will have done the impossible. The future act stood there, fixed and unaltered as if he had already performed it. You might say, if you liked, that the power of choice had been simply set aside and an inflexible destiny substituted for it. On the other hand, you might say that he had been delivered from the rhetoric of his passions 
and had emerged into an unassailable freedom to choose to do the right thing. Ransom could not, for the life of him, see any difference between these two statements. Predestination and freedom were apparently identical. He could no longer see any meaning in the many arguments he had heard on the subject. This is a great literary picture of a real truth, but it's a snapshot only of that truth. For we who live out our own story, there must be a backstory of how we get to this decisive place where our freedom and our destiny unites. And that process, which is necessary to get us to this place, is not a a snapshot. It's our life story. So when we come back, Lord willing, in our next session on this ongoing study, we will examine what it takes for God's sovereign grace to work in us through our struggles and battles and even our frustrations to help us really change and become the man or the woman that he's called us to be. Father, I pray for every person listening. I pray for those who are especially, Lord, in some real battle over the question of why you don't come through for them, quote-unquote, or why they are still suffering the same struggle that they've been suffering for X number of years. I pray for grace upon them. I pray for wisdom. I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that the eyes of their heart would be so flooded with light that they will begin to comprehend with all the saints the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, to know the love of Christ that surpasses mere human knowledge in order that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. And in that filling, they would embrace and trust your process so they could know that you who have begun a good work in them will complete it. In Jesus' name, amen.